Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's guest says parents are powerful and often don't realize how much influence they have over their children's brain development. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I'd like to welcome our guest today, Patricia, otherwise known as Tricia Wilkinson, who is the co-author of Brain Stages, How to Raise Smart, Confident Kids and Have Fun Doing It. Tricia, welcome to Mind Talk. Oh, thank you for having me. Tricia, tell us a little bit about your background. What brought you to writing this book? <laughs> How funny. Well, so I was a teacher for 23 years, and I'm one of the rare blessed teachers who has gotten to teach all of the grades from kindergarten actually through sixth grade and full-time at different stages because wow. the population was changing at our school and when this was happening, I would be the one to volunteer to go to another grade because most teachers don't like to do that. It's a lot of extra work. But I was really curious about all the different grade levels. And it turned out to be a really helpful thing because I ended up with two twice exceptional children. So they were both gifted, which sounds wonderful, but it means that they just catch on to certain things quickly. But they have a lot of other challenges. <laughs> and then anxiety runs in my family. So one had anxiety and the other one was diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yes. So um, so my research was pretty much in those 23 years of teaching kids as well as raising our own children. They're now 24 and 27. So, um, so that was my background. And then Jackie's background she was a teacher for a while, but she became a college professor, became a PhD, and her specialization was in, um, she was a learning expert, basically. So she did all this research on how brains work and how kids learn, and ba she actually died before the book came out. Um, and her dying wish was to get this information out to parents. So I, I also feel, you know, this strong drive to get the word out because we have learned so many exciting things in the last several years about how kids' brains work and just small tweaks and family routines that parents can do to make a huge difference for their children. And and give us Jacqueline's full name. Oh, Jacqueline Frischnecht. Okay. Terrific. And she is the co-author with you and, as you said, uh, predeceased the publication of this book. But, oh, my goodness, what a wonderful read this has been, certainly for me. In, in the beginning of Brain Stages, you share a lot of information about children's brains, how they develop, how they change. And you say that uh, perhaps one of the best things that parents can know is that children's brains are elastic. What do you mean by that? Well, they, it's actually the scientist's words. They, um, they call them plastic, or, and I also used elastic because 
children's brains change. So they change with, and all of our brains do actually, but children more so necessarily than adults because they're growing so fast and they're getting so many brand new experiences. But their brains are elastic because we can do something that hurts a child's feelings unintentionally because none of us are perfect, right? (laughs) Um, But parents, if we just own whatever we do and say, you know, oh my gosh, I really blew that. I'm sorry. I, you know, in the future, I'll be much more careful. And then we keep our word. They, they can bounce back. You understand? They learn that people aren't perfect. And sometimes even the adults in their lives make mistakes and that it's okay to try things and make mistakes. Now, you know, there are some parents who believe that you should never apologize to a child. But it sounds like you're actually saying that if you feel as though you've blown something, that actually apologizing to the child is helpful to his or her brain development. Absolutely, because when we apologize, we take responsibility for something that we've done. Um, because we, it's an acknowledgement that, that, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I'm a human being and humans do that. And as long, and that's unavoidable. So as long as we take responsibility for doing those things, and we don't do it on purpose, obviously. Of course. Um, if we make a mistake and we acknowledge that, wow, I made a mistake. I'm really sorry about that. I'm going to do better next time. Then I think for for children as well as as adults, it's validating. It's a it's a show of respect. And when we do that for children, they're more apt to do that for other people as well. You know, because so much of what our children learn is by example, right? Whether you know, sometimes on our unintentional examples. <laughs> Absolutely. You say something that that I think may be startling for some of our listeners when you talk about uh, how the brain uh, decides to create a memory path. You say that a brain decides in 18 seconds whether to create a memory path for new information. 18 seconds, that's like a flash. Yes, it's very quick. (laughs) And that's why children need to hear things and be exposed to things more than once, actually over and over again. So, And there are different numbers, different studies come up with different numbers. Some say 12, some say 18, some say 32. But it, it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is that's why... How children learn best is what we call spiraling. So they're introduced to something and then they use that something in something else. For example, say they're introduced to putting um, objects together. Maybe they're counting buttons. They're putting objects together to add them. And then later on, they may, they may have to add them for a specific purpose. So, you know, she has four buttons and he has three buttons and they're trying to share them. Can they divide them equally? You know, what what numbers, what combinations can they add together? Is this an even number or an odd number? You understand what I'm saying? Yes. So they use the numbers in all kinds of different ways to understand the relationship between numbers. And I'm just using numbers just because that's a concrete way to explain it. But it's true for everything, whether it's telling the truth or getting along with other people, or taking responsibility for a mistake, or, you know, being proud of themselves for something that they achieve. So, so that spiraling happens basically in everything. You, you talk about numbers, and it kind of takes me to a comment that you made about 
teaching a child math and flashcards. And there was a time when flashcards seemed like they were the way to go in teaching a child math, number recognition and math concepts. But you say that flashcards really kind of don't do it. Actually, flashcards in isolation don't do it because flashcards in isolation, if that's primarily the thing that you're using, especially for little kids, little kids learn from concrete to abstract best. So if they have actual objects to count and they can move things around, in my humble experience of teaching all those years, (laughs) uh, what I found is that children start creating relationships in their minds with numbers. Whereas if we do it all with numbers and just abstract and we're only using flashcards, then they're just, um, then they're just seeing the numbers, the abstract numbers instead of actually seeing the relationships. So I wouldn't say flashcards are bad or that they're wrong to use or any of that. I would just say that it's best to start out with actual things to count or numbers, you know, objects to divide so they can see what's going on with fractions. That's that's why, like, when they add and, and subtract fractions, they understand so much easier the, you know, why the no- denominator needs to be, you know, why they need to have a common denominator if they've actually seen the fractions and how they work. Otherwise, they're just doing the algorithm. I think for many years we just taught kids what the math problems looked like and taught them how to do it, but they didn't really understand what they were doing. So they made a lot more mistakes and they couldn't do things in their head. And I think when we show them how to do things actually with objects, and there are a whole bunch of games in the book that parents can do with kids that are just fun that you do while you're cooking dinner or folding socks, you know, matching socks or whatever you're doing. Um, By playing those games, they understand those relationships. So they just can do math in their heads. Which I think is, in, in a lot of ways, is, is the dream for many parents, that the child be able to do that. Trisha, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk a bit about the difference in, in ways that parents praise children and how that impacts the child differently. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and I'm having a conversation with Trisha Wilkinson, who is the co-author of Brain Stages, How to Raise Smart, Confident Kids and Have Fun Doing It. We will be right back. Don't go away. difference between praise and praise, I guess is what I'm saying. You say that there's a difference between praising a child for their intelligence versus praising a child for their effort. What's the difference? So praising a child for intelligence. Oh my gosh, you're so smart. I'm so proud of you. You're so smart. The problem with doing that is that when they run into a problem, then they start doubting themselves wow, well, am I really that smart? And it's just something natural that our brains do. I've been told all this time I'm so smart, and yet I can't figure this out. What's wrong with me? Maybe, and it's kind of like imposter syndrome, but I mean, kids don't really know what that is. 
But basically, they're thinking, gosh, other people think I'm so smart, and I'm not that smart because I can't figure this out. And many, many times they shut down. In fact, there was – there have been, actually, there are many studies that have been done about it and found that kids who are praised for their intelligence actually shut down and lead much less fulfilling lives, not, not just how well they do in school, but they don't learn – how to power through things. In fact, a lot of gifted kids have problems with that because so many people have told them, oh, you're so smart, that they end up shutting down and not finishing projects. When And they say, oh, they're bored or they just don't want to do it. And part of what happens is they run into trouble and they are afraid they won't be able to get through it or that they can't get through it and they just quit. Whereas if we say to kids, wow, I'm so proud of you for getting all the way through that project. That that was amazing. If you can, you know, train yourself to keep going and get through projects until, you're, until you meet whatever your goal you're after, you are just going to be light years ahead of, you know, so many, just the world. <laughs> you're going to reach so much success because you are, because you are a problem solver. So in praising kids for finishing things and for the effort that they put into things and for sticking with whatever project they're doing through to the end, whether it's finishing reading a book or they have a problem with something that they're trying to fix that that breaks or they're doing some kind of project at school or, you know, whatever it could be, if we praise them for their effort and sticking with it, and then if they start getting frustrated, we break it down into smaller pieces for them and say, well, you know, you have a really good start. So I don't know. Let's think about it. What could we do next? Then the kids are much more apt to keep going. And once they get more and more success with finishing something, even though they had problems along the way, we find that people in adulthood are much more successful when they've had practice as children to be able to finish projects. Whereas when we tell people they're so smart and they run into problems, then <laughs> a lot of times they just stop working on it because they feel like, well, maybe I'm not so smart after all. And it, and it actually creates anxiety for children to say you're so smart because then when they don't understand something, you know, that it creates anxiety, like, uh-oh, maybe I'm not so smart. You know, I, as as I think about it, it, it seems like praising a child for their effort also opens up a lot of the creative spaces that a child might otherwise sort of be able to walk through if they only get praised for a successful end. Oh, absolutely. Because we create all kinds of... Because that's where out-of-the-box thinking comes from, right? I mean, a lot of the safe ideas are the things that are more obvious, but we allow children the space to be able to look and do things that I, – I mean, so many times when I was teaching, we would have a problem or something that – and I would have done it several times with several groups of kids over the years – and then a child would come up with something completely different that I never thought of, and it worked out even better than what I had done before. 
You understand what I'm absolutely, saying? Absolutely. It, you definitely. Say, you say so many things just to, to help the reader of brain stages understand how the brain functions and the different levels at which it functions over time. You say that at the beginning of kindergarten, your child's brain will be close to its adult size and volume. You go on to say this means that your five-year-old is ready for experiences and influences to shape the person he or she will become. I don't think that enough parents are aware of the fact that at five, in kindergarten, a child can experience things that absolutely influence who they will become. Many parents sort of dismiss it as, well, that was kindergarten and it didn't really matter. You know, it's interesting because from the time our kids are very small, so our brains are kind of a little bit like a sculpture. So an artist starts with, say, they're using marble. They start with a great big chunk of marble and they chip away at it until they come up with a shape and the eventual statue itself right? So when we're born, we're born with, you know, bazillions of neurons and, you know, nerves, all kinds of stuff in our brain. And that's why, for example, language, if kids learn before they're nine years old to be fairly fluent in another language, then they won't have an accent. But after that, we've paired enough um, neurons away that we no longer have those language neurons. So you can learn a language after age nine, but generally kids who learn languages after age nine still have at least somewhat of an accent. And obviously there are exceptions or exceptions to every rule. Some people don't, but generally speaking, um, that's why they have an accent. So, so definitely everything kids do from the time, even they're two, I mean, sometimes, you know, things happen when kids are teeny tiny and it affects them all the way through their lives. In fact, there's a lot of work being done right now to help children who have been through traumatic experiences when they're anywhere from two to five to be able to recreate their lives and get through that trauma so that it doesn't affect the rest of their lives. Because when kids are in kindergarten, that is a very critical time for them because they are ready to develop. I mean, it's just an absolute takeoff point as far as developing kind of the next level of cognizance of who they are in so many ways that if traumatic things happen when they're five, sometimes it can follow them for the rest of their lives. You know, as, as you talk about trauma and really working with children between the ages of two and five, I naturally think about what's going on in our schools nowadays. And, and regardless of what uh, one's views are about gun rights, there are times when the violence is such that two and three and four and five-year-olds, whether they're in class or they have a sibling in class or they're watching it on the news, they are absolutely traumatized by the violence that's, that's going on in our school systems. What impact does that have on a child's brain? Well, I think, I mean, for a lot of kids, it's like PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's post-traumatic traumatic stress syndrome. So, um, so yeah, any traumatic situation like that. And, 
And what upsets me is that kids are going to school and they're fearful in the first place. They feel like, you know, when I went to school, I never even thought about somebody coming in my school. I mean, that was just never even, you know, it, it was never even an issue. I never thought of it because that was before that time. You know, I'm showing my age. That was before that time. <laughs> um, but but now, kids, I mean, that's a real fear. All these schools that, you know, where I grew up, they all have fences around them now and they never had fences around them they were you know you could come and go and now they have locked fences around the schools I mean so just a lot has changed in our society and I think whenever although I will say that we are moving toward there was there is a bill that just passed in the house I don't know if it will pass in the senate but providing funding for emotional training and to help children who have been in traumatic situations but to just help children emotionally anyway traditionally we've just said oh that's the parents job to be able to do that they you know they should learn that at home which is true on one level but on another level if those parents didn't get that training when they were little from their parents it just goes for generation after generation whereas if we can work with kids now there are all kinds of studies that that back up the notion that if we give kids emotional training, there are lower drug problems. They have better relationships. They do better in school. They get, you know, they're more successful in their adult lives. I mean, they're just, and, and they're longitudinal studies that are absolutely definitive. <laughs> so if we decide as a society that we're going to fund something like that, and I think a lot of that is just understanding and education, you know, with people in general, people say, oh, well, you know, parents should do that. Well, parents should educate their children in emotional and social, and there are a lot of things in brain stages about how to do that, especially if you, you know, weren't raised in a very um, nurturing home growing up and you want to nurture your own child's brain development and help them develop successful relationships and have a successful relationship with your child. There are a ton of like activities and brain stages and, and explanations. And a, a lot of the reason that Jackie and I focused on that is because we wanted to let people know that parents are powerful. You're powerful. And that can sound scary, but if you have kind of a roadmap, if you know what to do, and it's actually a lot of it is just small tweaks and routine. It's not, you know, these huge monumental things. For example, um, until kids are 11 years old, the studies have found it was a study in, uh, I should look that up, the study in, it was a Dutch study, so it was in Holland. Okay. So they did a study in Holland where they used MRI machines and did testing on hundred, uh, close to 1,000 kids, hundreds and hundreds of kids, and on different age groups. And what they found is before kids are 11 years old, they don't process negative feedback. So if you're saying to your third grader, oh my gosh, we've been over this, you know, so many times, how many times do I have to tell you this? What were you thinking? All of those things. And it comes out negatively. Nothing shows up on the MRI in the prefrontal cortex or the parietal parietal lobes, which are our thinking parts of our brain. That's interesting. Whereas if we say, okay, you know, that's a good start. You did that part. Now, what were you supposed to do, Dexter? Uh-oh, what did you forget? 
then it'll jog the kids' minds, and then they can say something. But when kids that are little, if you've been negative with them, and kids that are little, that look, they look at you blankly, it's because literally, physically, their brains are not processing what you just said. Tricia, there's so many things that you have taught uh, or, or will teach readers of brain stages, and time has not been our friend today. I just want to go through very, very quickly a couple of things and really encourage folks to, to get more information, to make it their business to get more information about brain stages. You say that you report a National Sleep Foundation study that says children between 6 and 13 need 9 to 11 hours every night, but that if your child is routinely sleeping 12 hours or more, you need to check in with your pediatrician. That's very valuable information that I'm not sure that enough parents are aware of. Well, it's, it's funny because sleep is when we have delta waves, which are our slowest brain waves, and those brain waves are healing for the brain. So the, when we go through those delta waves in our sleep patterns, it kind of cleans out the junk. So the, the damaged cells, it'll repair damaged cells, it'll get rid of cells that are, you know, that aren't reparable. <laughs> um, it helps develop new cells. So they're, you know, so sleep and exercise as well help develop new cells. And so if our kids aren't getting enough sleep, then they're not, then their brain, you know, and all of us get cranky, right? <laughs> when we don't get enough sleep. And that's because our brains physically, that's the way our body tells us you must sleep. You got to shut down so that so that I can repair myself. And then when kids are getting way too much sleep, usually there is, you know, they're sleeping a minimum and everyone's different. That's why I said, just ask your pediatrician because some kids, their natural sleep, the norm is nine to 11 hours. Well, they may for their little growing bodies at the time in their lives, 12 hours may be normal for them. So that could be fine, but it also could be an indication of some other problems, some other function that is not going well, and if that's the case, then it would be good to ask your pediatrician so that other steps can be taken. You also, and you go through each grade, you go from kindergarten to fifth grade. You talk about the brain, the social traits, the academics, what's outside the norm for the fifth grader, what's important in terms of uh, caring for your fifth grader, where do you see yourself in this process? So it's it's called brain stages, but it almost kind of reads like a brain Bible. And it just gives you all the pieces of information that you need to have for each stage. You make the point that during the fourth grade in particular, girls' frontal lobes begin to grow at a faster rate than boys. Now, there are some girls who may be listening saying, yeah, well, I told you so. And the boys are saying, oh, what are you <laughs> talking about? That's a bunch of junk. Is it a bunch of junk or is it true? Oh, no, that is definitely true. It was a study that was done in Australia, and, and it was longitudinal. They had worked for a long time trying to figure out if there was a divide between girls' and boys' brains because there has been all of this stuff with gender over the years. So they were just going to find out definitively, are boys and girls different? And the truth is our, our development is different, and boys and girls are different, but that is a thing to celebrate. That's a whole different situation. That's a whole different subject. <laughs> but the point is, is that in about the middle of fourth grade, brain, b girls and boys' brains, their 
separate in how and their pace of development. So for girls, their frontal lobes and their their thinking parts of their brain start developing faster than boys, and boys usually catch up with them uh, usually by the, by middle school. So some of it's environmental as far as our show social structures and whatnot, but part of it is absolutely physical. Boys and girls' brains do not develop at the same rate from fourth to maybe sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, depending on the, you know, depending on the children. Sounds like, again, a whole other conversation. Tricia, (laughs) tell us where people can get more information about brain stages. Well, I have a lot of great information on my blog, on my website. You can just go to thebrainstages.com and um, you can also even if you have a specific issue that you want to deal with um, that you you know have looked through the book or you've read a few of the blog posts and you can't figure out how to deal with it with your child you can also email me at trish at thebrainstages.com and if I don't know the answer I have a lot of experts friends who are experts in the field who can give me input and you know we can give you direction on where to go next if you're having issues. Um, and the the book is available anywhere, like Amazon or wherever. Trish, your Brain Stages is written for parents of kids K through 5. If a parent is listening and their child is in the 6th grade, can they still send you an email? Oh, absolutely. In fact, a lot of the information in the fifth grade chapter applies to sixth grade as well. Um, That's actually the next book the publisher wants me to write is the middle school version. So so we'll are a continuation with middle school. But a person who has a, a sixth grader would actually find out a lot of good information in the fifth grade chapter. I do want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing such great information with us. Well, thank you for having me. You, and, you've been a wonderful host. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you on a regular basis. It is not meant to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. You can always listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to mindtalk.org. There's a, a Mind Talk app, or you can go to your favorite platform and and in all likelihood, Mind Talk will be there as well. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. If you'd like to be in touch with me directly, that's Pamela, P A M E L A, at mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D T A L K.org. And remember always, folks, if it's unacceptable, that's what it is unacceptable. You take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.